it's not it's right currently ranked number three but thanks for listening in the comments very positive from a lot of old friends teammates uh people i grew up with um i finally got my first um stick to tennis comments and i think i'm actually proud of that that people told me to get back to talking tennis but it is my podcast if you like to all tennis 100 percent of the time start your own right so quickly before I bring in, I have a special guest today, but I'm trying not to laugh before I introduce him. Um, I forgot one person on my last podcast talking with my dad, an influence on my tennis life, and my, my guest today knows this person well. Um, I just want to say, um, just recognize Coach Brandon Murphy from Lincoln High School. He was my high school coach and uh, probably knew me since I was very young. Um, he used to stop it. <laughs> He used to drive around uh, the neighborhood, all the courts in his, uh, his truck or then his van, just recruiting kids to play tennis, um, carrying his ball machine around, talking tennis, generating interest. It's probably how I started. My dad mentioned a conversation with him about starting to play tournaments and those kind of things. But my high school career probably would not have been the same. Our team would not have been the talent it was without him. So I just wanted to sort of say hello and recognize him because I, I was sort of feeling bad about missing him. Um, so, Mr. Murphy, thanks, and I uh, hope things are good with you. Um, so, last week we had our first guest, and I am risking another week of this podcast bringing in someone that I've known for a long time. Um, he's currently sitting in Sarasota, Florida. And my first question for you, Coach, before I introduce you, what's the temperature today? Uh, low 80s. Low 80s. I hate you. I you. You suck. So that is the voice of Hall of Fame tennis coach Ron Famer Albers. <laughs> he's got he's got other names, but I'm going to try to stick with Famer today. Um, he's the guy, the coach who made me throw up more than any other. He's the only one to ever lock me on a balcony in Corpus Christi, Texas. Um, he's also the only one to ever bring home a national championship trophy for the mighty BU Trailblazers in 2006, right? Uh, you're close. You're, you're back within five years. That's I got it right. Isn't that right? 2011. Come on, man. Oh, the Colts were 2006. I got my dates mixed up. Yeah. Oh, God. Very similar games. <laughs> yeah, they are. Um, so this is uh, Coach Ron Albers. He was the longtime tennis coach at Vincennes University in addition to all kinds of other um, private coaching stuff. Um, worked with me a lot when I was high school. I played for him. Um, so he's going to join us today. Uh, he's pretty excited because after 489 years, he finally gets the single, see the Bengals play in the Super Bowl next Sunday. So he, he's pretty excited. So Faber, my second question. How many halls of fame are you currently in? Uh, Do you know? I think three, four. So ITA? ITA, uh, NJCAA, uh, Lake it... Winoka, and uh, my high school, Bethel Tate. <laughs> Doesn't Wilson have one? Or is that ITA? No, that was through the ITA. Okay. There'd probably be one more if you had a uh, hall of fame, but I'm not really sure why oh. after all the years and all the famous... <laughs> People that have gone through there. No, sure, basketball players, and oh, I, baseball players. I yeah, agree. You know, we don't, didn't have one there at the university. It was kind of strange. Yeah. So, like I said, coach was my he was my college coach. Um, 
won pretty much everything you could win as a as a coach. And he is retired now, and all he does is um, walk, play golf, eat, go to the early bird special, and then I think <laughs> sit in his recliner. And that's pretty much his life now. So coaches look forward to that. Sometimes that could be a full day. I guess it could. All right, let's get to it, Coach. Um, right. How'd you get started in tennis? What was your path? Oh, my gosh, God. It's a big question, but... Decades ago. Um, <laughs> I actually just picked it up on my own. A buddy of mine and I just started hitting the ball around. We were, I don't know, gosh, 12, 13 years old, maybe. And it wasn't really that big a sport back at that point in time as far as lessons or... Uh, indoor facilities, things like that. We were playing outside in the summer, kind of morphed into playing a little bit more and then getting into high school. Didn't have a high school team until my junior year, so we played uh, a couple years in the high school team. And then uh, I actually toyed with the idea of playing college tennis uh, at Eastern Kentucky and was, was going to walk on there, but uh, foolish me, I had a better high school wrestling career in the state finals in Ohio and thought maybe I was going to wrestle in college, and that was a silly mistake because and it's one thing to do in high school when you're trying to cut weight and everything, but in college it's just another beast. And so after a year, they actually just ended the program. And but I kept playing tennis and really loved the sport. So then the opportunity came to be you to coach. Wow! So you went from really nothing to coaching college. Really, that was your first yeah. experience in coaching. Yep. Sure right. Was. Wow. So you got into tennis because you sucked at wrestling, is what I heard. Well, well that, you know, I got pictures. Is that <laughs> you want to wrestle me? Yeah, that, <laughs> it wouldn't be pretty. <laughs> All right, um, let's get the serious tennis stuff. Yeah. What's your? I asked my dad the same question. I want to know. We've have not talked about this. What is your take on the Djokovic COVID Australian Open situation? Should he have been there? What What do you think? Uh, well, like anything else, it's reported these days in the news cycles, there's a lot of information that we may not be privy to, uh, but on the surface of what was reported of him not being vaccinated and uh, flying into Australia after traveling, I believe it was to Spain maybe to train, Something and like then that. Uh, he did not report that, it uh, was, was in the news, and so it, that's the case of the Australian government and their criteria. To, uh, enter their country, that's that's up to them, and that's that's their rule to, to enforce. Yeah, I agree. I'm, I sort of, that, yeah. if everybody else had to do it, and they did it and played a great tournament, he could have done it too. Um, yep. Without knowing, either one of us knowing all the details, just throwing out our own thoughts. Um, right. All right, next one. <clears throat> we talked about this briefly. Nadal has 21 Grand Slam victories now one more than Federer and Joker you don't believe he's the greatest of all time correct uh no I'll still stay I'll stick with Federer and I've got reasoning Fed, go for it tell me why Federer is better as one on more is one if we're just talking majors right which if we're talking the Dow's won the Balkans majors on clay. He's by far the greatest clay court player ever, but no doubt. And he's 1A right behind Federer. There's no big gap between him and, and Fed in my eyes. But I think Federer has proven on multiple different surfaces from Australia to the U.S. Open to to the French to Grassland Wimbledon, to the Grassland Wimbledon that he's more versatile of a player 
and able to win more titles on more different surfaces than Nadal, whose bulk of his have been on clay. Now, he has one on the others, obviously, but I just think the, the split of the amount of times he's won on clay is predominant versus Federer's on the other three surfaces. Yeah. Well, I looked it up, too, and I, I initially I thought it's got to be Nadal, and then I looked at the numbers. <clears throat> Feds won eight Wimbledon, six Australian, five U.S. Opens. Pretty, pretty even across there. And, Nadal, it, and you get down to it. That's three different surfaces because Australia and U.S. Open are quote cardboard, but that rebound ace in Australia is different than the U.S. Yeah. Open surface. Nadal only ha- has two Wimbledon, two Australian, four U.S. Open. He's fair, pretty far behind in the rest of them. Um, yeah. Thirteen French. And I, I think I, I've always thought Fed was the greatest ever, and uh, I think I'm. I think you've turned me. I think I'm with you. Oh my God. It's a little different. I mean, it's not quite as dominant as Michael Jordan with six championships. But it's, you know, it's close to, you know, he's the GOAT. So it's sort of Jordan and then Nadal and Joker would be like LeBron or Reggie Miller probably up there. We don't want to go there. So just, just, wanted to get, <laughs> just wanted to get that out there. All right, I got to talk. Right. I got to talk a little real tennis, coach. And I, yeah. we we talked briefly about some stuff. So, about a last summer, I had a a family member of a student, prospective junior student of mine, who was asking about possibly taking lessons with me. And this person told me very clearly that they did not want me teaching any of that fancy modern stuff like open stance and topspin. And this is a 15, 16-year-old great athlete, but I was told that I wasn't allowed to teach modern things like open stance and topspin. And I did not take on that student. But I, I want to get your take a little bit because I pretty much teach all, and I'm talking ground strokes now. We'll get to the volley later. Um, I pretty much teach all open stance on the forehand now. Um, and if you're stepping across, it's got to be because the ball tells you to. It's a wide ball. It's a short and low, that kind of thing. Uh, when you first started tennis, teaching, coaching, was open stance a thing yet? Or was it still that kind of, I call it Chris Everett tennis, that classic step in, step across. Um, when you started, was open stance a, a thing yet? Or were you still teaching or most players hitting that sort of classic swing? Well, you got to remember, when I started first coaching tennis, I mean, we used, you know, white tennis balls. Yeah. So and and you rode dinosaurs to the courts. Well, well, that's, a, that's, a, that's after we made them. It's just the felt ourselves. But I was curious if, those, if the parents also learned, to, learned, the, uh, learned their son to use a wooden 55-square-inch racket as yeah, well. I agree. That's... And my question, yeah, when I first started, sure, we, that's, it was more classic tennis, the eastern forehand grip, minimal topspin, um, just because that's what the equipment dictated. And like when you said modern tennis, well, it's it's the modern player, it's the equipment. The equipment now dictates open stance, and without getting too much into physics and, and, and motor skills of, of, or the mechanics of, of the swing, but... Uh, open stance is it is because the equipment is so, so much more powerful now it's so lightweight you can generate so much racket head speed with with the open stance from from legs to torso to upper body the athletes are more fit it's just an evolution of the game uh, i'll compare it to golf same thing but the equipment uh tennis was kind of light years behind going from 
standard size rackets to oversized. The golf went to the you know, oversized oversized drivers plus the different materials. So yeah, the game is the equipment is dictated, technology is dictated that we advance into the uh, modern era of open stance tennis. And I don't know an instructor now that teaches a classic type of game anymore because the equipment says no. See. Again, we agree on this, except for your last one about you don't know another instructor because you're you're not necessarily in the everyday tennis coaching world anymore. It's still happening. Wherever I've yeah, been, I'll take, I'll take it back. I don't know any really good instructors. That teach it. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> That's better. I've I've had change of different clubs recently in the last three or four years, and I've I've met a lot of different ones, and I'm still a little bit surprised by the people who aren't aren't at least trying it with their students. Um, I've had many recently that I've changed to open stance and it's become one thing that I will not negotiate on. Like a lot of things I will. I won't negotiate on the continental grip for the surf. You have it or you don't play with me. And now I'm leaning towards open stance. Um, but I, I generally teach it's open as much as possible. And you're going to step across when you're forced to because of whether it's a wide ball or generally short and low balls. A short ball that's low, you have to step up and take a big step to it. Everything else, be an athlete versus a, again, Chris Everett-style tennis player. Everybody's athletes now. I think I think Agassi, um, the Williams sisters, that crew of people is where open stance. I, I first remember seeing open stance from players like that that could wind up and let it rip. It may have been earlier. Was there earlier people before them? Am I missing somebody? Uh, I don't think like that. Like I think the equipment dictated the the open stance and the and the actual swing path of the racket. Yeah. Uh, with that small fifty five square inch uh, head you were using before, the mishits were, were were tough. I mean, the first one that really started generating tops and was in back in my day was was Bohr. and mm -hmm. he was doing it with that. Dunlop 55 square inch small head racket. His timing was so precise with that. Right. To be able to, you know, generate that topspin with, with that swing path. Do you remember watching Aaron Crickstein play? Yes. I used absolutely. to watch him a lot. He was he was a big open stance, athletic, like, yep. different style of play. Um, him, him and Connors, U.S. Open. Oh, yeah. Finals, I can't remember the year, but. Oh, epic match. One of the greatest matches ever. So, players out there, if you're listening, don't be afraid of it. If your coach wants to try it, go with it. Don't don't fight them on it. Um, go to YouTube and watch any of your favorite pros hit tennis balls, and you're going to see the open stance far more than the others. But it's a thing that um, I think you should challenge yourself to get out of that a little bit. Coach, another one I wanted to bring up we talked about was the crossover step on volleys. It's similar to that open stance. I, I rarely teach it. I teach it all, again if the ball is if it's required. I got to dive for one or a difficult shot. But I'm much more face the ball, be balanced, be an athlete, do whatever it takes to get that ball back. Because crossing over to me doesn't prepare you for the next shot. Um, but I still have so many coaches I hear that are teaching that crossover step, and it drives me insane. Um, <laughs> I, what do you think? You, are you a you know you're a modern guy? Oh, Even though you're 97 years old, yeah, keep it back to the you know back in the day. Uh, I don't use the word never, you know, but I know or can't. Middle time, yeah, it's one of the three obscene ones I had. To. Anyway, you're trying to hit a successful shot. 
to get back in the, in, to get back to your opponent's court. As simple as that. You're trying to get a successful shot. There's only one thing that has to happen for that shot to be successful, and that's for that ball to hit the strings and for you to direct it back into the opposing court when you're at the net. You don't need power. You need placement. The strings dictate where the ball goes. So anything you add in addition to that, footwork, swing, racket movement, things like that, are going to complicate that simplicity of, the, of that one essential element that you need at the net. If those hands are up, the hands are out, and you block and direct that ball, the feet don't have to move. If you're worried about anything else, where there's that contact with the strings on the ball to direct it where you want to go, you're you're doing too much. And unless the fact that, like you mentioned, the ball dictates that I have to move my feet to go, then yeah, we cross over, we cut off the ankle, cut off the ball before it gets too wide, and we can direct and block and direct it to where we want it to go. So right. I mean, I, my my big thing was was in teaching juniors up through the, the college guys, so like you you guys when you played, block it, direct it where you want it to go, and the one thing that has to happen, the ball's got to hit the strings, and the strings have to point in the right direction, you win the point. Simple as that. Make it simple. So, any of my listeners that listen to this thing, you should just listen to what Coach Alver said over and over and over, because that's it. He talked about not complicating things with those extra steps. Um, getting your it's so simple tennis is easy get your racket pointed in the direction you want to go and hit the strings it'll it'll go there and then watch your pace decide is it fast or slow but coach i'm telling you i'm in the club world it's every day people are still teaching yep. this and i am battling till my career is over <laughs> to get it and so one thing i'm going to do at the end of this when i when i post this um i'm going to attach a video uh, I, I do have it on my newsletter. I'm going to attach a video. I've got slow motion Roger Federer. And it's about 10, maybe 11 balls before he has any even close to that foot crossing over. He moves both feet in any direction, whatever gets him in the right position. Um, I think of it too like a, a shortstop, a center fielder. The ball comes in, they see it, they make whatever move they need to get that ball. But if you're listening to this and you're struggling with your volleys, stop working so hard. Less is a little bit more. and Just face face the ball, face the danger. Um, it'll make it a whole lot easier. But watch for that video when we, we post this thing because um, I think it's important. And many of you that are on court with me know that I don't let you cross over and I make fun of you. So if you don't want to get made fun of by me. Um, all right, Coach, we're going to move on a bit. You're in the pickleball world now, right? Uh, taught, a, taught a ton, living in Florida. You're in the one of the meccas of it it's everywhere so i just want to have a quick discussion on a couple of things do you think i've heard people tell me that especially the grumpy tennis players who aren't accepting it as an, an additional racket sport they can play that it's a fad uh what, what would you say to somebody who says this is just a fad it'll be gone in two years three years uh say that you're not correct <laughs> i'm a liar or anything but they but, no, it's not a fad anymore. It was a fad back in 19, well, see, the early 80s when I taught pickleball as part of a three-sport racket class at, at Vincennes University. It was uh, racquetball, badminton, pickleball. And I had never heard of the game. No one else had either. And we played it then. It never caught on. Um, fast forward 40 years, and, and now we're in the midst of a booming sport that is the most popular or fastest growing sport in this country that people 
left. And you know, I, I understand your uh, predicament with being in the club and tennis players not wanting to accept pickleball as a new sport on their, quote, turf. But you got to realize that with uh, every passing year, we have some changes. We have some uh, modernization. We went from closed stance to open stance as far as hitting balls. Now we're going to add pickleball as a, as a great sport to play in addition to playing tennis. No one's trying to make pickleball the tennis and take tennis away, but you got to accept that pickleball is going to be here and accept it, go play it, try it, have it uh, improve your tennis game. It's a great sport. Yeah, you mentioned improving your tennis game. I get a lot of people tell me I don't play that. It's going to hurt my tennis game, and I'm like, no, no chance. It's false. Don't you agree? It's just the skills translate so well, especially to that net game and your quickness and touch, that I don't see how it could hurt somebody. Oh, absolutely. The the, the tennis has is, is become it's it's kind of come full circle. Tennis used to be a game about. If you looked at the uh, way back, you get videos, YouTube, whatever of people like Laver, Rosewall, Drysdale, which I'm probably date myself too many to tell a lot of people, but it used to be a more of a touch finesse game. And then with the advent of the new equipment, with the rackets and the materials and the and technology, it's become a strictly power game now. The, the game of tennis, even the women's game, is in the men's game both, it become down to a, a big serve and a big forehand. And that's it. There are a handful, a handful of players who would serve in volley nowadays. Back before, you'd have quite a few because the power game has taken over with the equipment. Well, pickleball now, throw back to that touch finesse game where when you go through the initial stage of learning the game pickleball, it becomes a very touch finesse game up the net, up the uh, non-volley zone line, working on touch finesse, and that translates directly to tennis, to touch control. You're trying to hit underspin. You're trying to hit slice off a, a backhand. Your pickleball game will help that. You're trying to be able to be comfortable at the net playing doubles. Pickleball will help that with your reaction and your touch and your and actually your footwork as well. We just we yeah. just touched on, so it's a super sport to add to your tennis game. Right, I just, I just tell people why not try it? It's another racket sport. It's it's a lot of fun. And um, do you think it's going? How far away from it starting to decline? Like it's been rising quickly for the last what three to five years in America. Do you see it? I don't know when people ask me, when is it going to stop? When is it going to tail off? And I, I have no idea. I think it's going to keep going for a while, oh, yeah. right? It's not going to, it's, it's grown exponentially the last five, six years. Uh, with courts being built, uh, equipment manufacturers have have blown up. I, I don't know now. There's probably at least a dozen paddle manufacturers now where before there was a handful. I think when you, actually, when you came down here a few years ago and, yeah, and it's, at the demo paddles, there, there may have been three or four paddle manufacturers on the market. Now there's at least a dozen. Oh, I, there's, I there's think a lot. It, it's going to keep growing, not at that pace, but it's still going to grow and and be extremely uh, popular. And and I think it's going to morph down into, and I hope so, that it morphs down into the high schools, middle schools, grade schools, because let's look at grade schools looking for activities for kids indoors. In Wisconsin, what do you do in the winter for indoor activities with kids? You can't play tennis if you don't have a club. Uh, tough on an indoor basketball court. You can bring a portable net out, equipment out, boom, you got pickleball. So I, I can see it, you know, morphing down into there and eventually get into in the, the different high schools as a as a high school varsity sport. 
Yeah, there's some groups now that are starting um, junior pickleball programs. There's a whole junior pathway now, and I think you're going to see a high school sport for sure in the next five years. I want to coach. Absolutely. It's, it's going to be a great sport. It's, it's I don't know, to credit to me, pickleball is a lot easier than tennis. Tennis is, is really hard, and a lot of kids get discouraged when they first start out trying to learn tennis because it is such a hard right. game. That ball moves so fast for younger kids. And the pickleball moves a little slower. They'll be able to pick it up quicker. Uh, I can really see it exploding with the uh, with the grade school. And then once that inertia is built from there and the momentum carries forward from there, you can build a, a great junior program of, uh, of future pickleball players. Yeah, I think it's popular for some – some things at tennis that I think can bother people. One, it's so hard to go from a beginner to a three zero can be years. I mean, you know yeah, how hard years. that is. People listening know how difficult that is. You can go. I have a group tonight at six o'clock. Twelve people never played before. Beginners in ninety minutes, they're going to be two fives and they're going to be playing matches and keeping score, and think it think it's great. And I think that's quick. I also think the not waiting on someone to go find the second ball not switching sides every two minutes and someone all it takes is one person to get a have to stop and get water and sit in their chair to ruin the vibe um i really like that if you're partnered up in pickleball with someone you don't either like you don't play well together they annoy you it's a game to 11 and then you're out of here new partner doubles you're stuck for 90 minutes minimum two hours at some clubs with people you don't like Pickleball is like, all right, if I can make it to 11 with this person, next one, we're going to rotate. I'm not going to see them again. And I think that's like like, the life skills you learn. (laughs) Pickleball is the best way to avoid people you don't like. That's what we – Life skills. Yeah. So have you seen Padel? Do you know anything about that? It's the one – I think I may have sent you a video at some point. Um, They play it in the cage. It's kind of like a mix of platform. Yeah, it's like a flat platform. So just a random dumb fact for anyone out there. It's this game called Padel. Again, I've put it on my social media. I've talked to people about it. It was in my newsletter. It's actually called Paddle in Europe. But because America already has paddle tennis or platform tennis, they changed it to Padel in America. How about that little juicy tip? Pass on to your your friends. Boy, are you. Aren't you a wealth of knowledge? <laughs> yeah. Take, I've got more. But oh. take <laughs> yeah. Tell me, tell me. I'm definitely gonna get a podcast award for that little that little tidbit. Alright, um so I got to coach college college tennis for two years. I wish I was still coaching, but it just yeah, where's didn't my gear. I actually just gave away a whole bunch. <laughs> I should have saved it for you. So my two years yeah. was great. I loved the coaching. I enjoyed, I coached uh women's tennis. Um Really enjoyed it. The on-court, the travel was, although tiring, I enjoyed it. I called you many times after matches uh, that I was excited about and I wanted to talk about it. But it didn't work. The school I was at, we were on different pages of how to go forward. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit just about recruiting. And I know you've been out of it for a bit, but I, I got annoyed with other coaches, not necessarily local, but wherever I traveled. All they care about now, Coach, is the UTR. And that number is basically it's a number assigned to a kid based on their tournament play. It's a valid number, but 
coaches now, I'm finding, and you, you're welcome, coaches, call me, text me, email me about if I'm wrong, but everyone I talk to, the first question they ask when I want to get a girl to play there, what's their UTR number? And if it doesn't reach what they're looking for, they will not even talk to them. They will not make the phone call, the email, they don't care. It's become completely a numbers game, and I think it's made coaches lazy because they can just go on a computer, oh, that guy's a 6.2, not good enough, I'm looking for an 8. Won't even talk to him. And it, yep. it bothers me, and I know back in the day you were a coach that had to travel a lot and yep. calls and spend hours and hours. Um, so I guess I wanted to just sort of ask you how it was back when you did it and what do you think about my perception of what – and I, I'm not talking D1 coaching. I'm talking D3, junior college, some D2. I think it's – I can't speak for what Division One coaches are doing, but I don't coach players that go there. So what, it, what was it like when you were back in the day grinding out for, what, 35 years? 34. 34. Guy, you couldn't do one more, huh? Well, you don't no. have court, they took your courts away, so <laughs> – uh, what do you, what do you think about that? Oh my gosh, God, we've gone for days about that. I know um, you don't have days. I know. Well, <laughs> um, actually, I, I can tell you, I, have, I still have a lot of friends in the coaching industry and, and in college tennis. I can tell you that D one coaches maybe even worse than really going down the line as far as looking for a standard or a number. Uh, a lot of them are, uh, and I think you're spot on. It's it's made recruiting so much. Oh, it's made it easier for sure. When I first started, there was no. I mean, I coached before we had computers and online. And, I mean, it was it was phone calls, handwritten letters, travel to whatever city to to watch a tournament, uh, looking for players, and it, you know, kind of morphed from. You know, I went from local to regional to statewide to Midwest to U.S. and then international was how I blossomed out trying to recruit because it was a lot, it's a lot of effort, a lot of time, but. The, um, the UTR, um, I was like to a quick story. I was on the IPA board when I was coaching. And at that time, uh, Dave Fish was the coach at Harvard. And I don't know if Dave's still there or not. I don't think he's still there. But at that time, he was the one who was the um, the one behind the UTR. Oh, yeah? Measurable that kind of combined because we had there was so much trouble with between U.S. rankings and international rankings. Every country had their own. And so it was really difficult as a college coach to understand, well, the English you know, ranking, he was a plus two point whatever. And a French ranking, he was a minus 15. And Australia was different. And, and Sweden was different. So it really was difficult to get a gauge on uh, the player's level. Uh, so in that respect, it's really helped coaches understand exactly the level the player is or a better idea i should say not exactly but a better idea of what level the player is but it has taken away the recruiting aspect of what's the player's work ethic i mean what how, how quickly did he get to an 8.0 or 6.0 whatever the standard is now where he is or she is and what's their potential for growth because that's what you're looking for as a college coach you're looking at what they are now you want to know what where they're going to be once they get to your program and do they have the work ethic to, to, to improve? That hasn't changed in, you know, 40 years. you got to look for the potential, how, how much they can improve, what kind of, you know, what's their personality? Are they coachable? Do they want to learn? Do they fit into the team aspect? There's so many more variables than that, that number. But off the top, to start with, yeah, it's made coaching a little bit more, or recruiting rather, a little bit more, uh, 
cost or whatever as far as just looking at a tight end number. Yeah, I agree. It, it bothers me because coaching, I know it was only two years, brand new school. I, I have a player, her name is Kiana. If you're listening, Kiana, I'm talking about you. Um, she came to me, never played in her life. Maybe Bob falls around, but her UTR would be a zero. I took her, yes, join us. We'd love to have you. And by the end of it, she won a conference championship at two doubles. She walked away with a freaking trophy. Um, when she, and she would agree with me, wasn't, couldn't hit a ball when we started. And she ends up her second year as a conference champion. And I think looking at UTR, she would never make a team without an opportunity like that. And if I was a coach who said, sorry, you've got to have this number, I miss out on a, uh, a really cool um, situation with her and getting to know her and watch her grow and um, become a she became a tennis player uh, from from really almost nothing and it bothers me that there's so many kids out there that aren't getting that opportunity because many coaches will not even address them anymore or return a text or a phone call and um, again coaches if you happen to listen to this feel free to tell me I'm wrong. Um, or agree with me, and we'll figure out how to fix it someday. Um, so, couple, uh, couple, three quick things here. I want to mention about Coach Albers. So he he mentioned thirty four years coaching. If and most of you won't know what where or what Vincennes University is. So it's a small town in southern Indiana. At the time, what twenty thousand people, Coach? Fifteen. Yeah, yeah. Um, small junior college. Uh, I'd say a sort of a working town surrounded by farms. If you drive out five minutes in any direction, you're in you know farmland. And he took this from nothing to one of the best junior college teams to ever play every single year. All top tens, right? Thirty straight years, top ten in the nation with this team, and and if you saw it, it's a it's a nice campus in a little small town where I grew up. Um, so if you're a tennis player and listening to anything he said about tennis, you you have to you have to follow that. I did. I mentioned on the previous podcast that that coach initially taught me how to play tennis. I was pretty good in high school. Again, I mentioned my my high school coach, Coach Murphy, um, and when I went to VU. He, he took it to another level and got me probably as better than I should have been with the talent I had, although I got some sweet volleys and drop shots. <laughs> uh, so I just want to give an idea of what he, what he, was, what he did back then um, and for a lot of kids. So, Coach, do you know how many weddings you've been in of your players? <laughs> if you had to guess, oh, over oh. under 20. Yep, he was in mine. Yeah. Went, to, went to Vegas. Yeah, destination wedding. I guess one of the only destination weddings I did. Nice. That was fun. Yeah. We had a good time, didn't I we? I must have really liked Vegas or something. Yeah, that was a that was a good time. You were in Mark's wedding too, right? Yep. Dang. I hope you got me something. Um, another thing too, I mentioned on my last one, or a couple ago, I I I talked about my friend Jeff Mershinsky, um, and and told you all that there's some people in my world that I don't make big decisions without talking to. And Jeff is one of them. And obviously 
coach is one of them, and I, I don't make anything major with my career without having a conversation with him. I probably, we've talked multiple times about jobs and what I should do in these things. So I'm hopeful people out there have someone like I had three to four important people that I can still run things by, even if they do make you vomit and throw you on a, a balcony to get attacked by seagulls. Um, coach, I, I missed one up here. Um, I just mentioned sort of who I, my sort of mentors in it. I know tennis wasn't your number one growing up, but when you started, did you have people like I have you and I've got Michael Connell and Tom Cascarano and all these people that I can go to for things. Did you have somebody in the tennis world that you could go to as a young coach? Um, not really just because it, it's again, it's, flying by the seat of my pants when I got to Vincennes, they had just built six courts and finished them like August 1st, and I started August 15th, and I didn't, I didn't get the job till August, I don't know, first week of August probably, and they had just finished building the courts, so there was no team, no program, no history, well, there was history, maybe it had been 10 years earlier, so I just kind of hit the ground running, swinging you know, flying by the seat of my pants, as I said, and, and trying to find out everything from practices to scheduling, the budget, the, the recruiting and everything. It was, it was just, it was kind of, you know, I get a little bit isolated there in Vincennes, and so it was tough to find, and I was not from the area. I grew up in Cincinnati, went to school and, uh, in Kentucky, and then came to Vincennes, and, uh, but just absolutely loved it there once I got, got it rolling, and it was, uh, it was a blast all the years of, yeah, most of the years. There's a few, but, you know, I'd say at least 30, 32 of them are really fun. There's a couple, I, you know. Yeah. No, it really was. It was like, you know. What? How were the tracker years? Were those <laughs> Coach <laughs> drew. Not as the RX-7 years. Coach drove a blue tracker for a while. We used to give him a little grief about it because he, was that after the RX-7? Was that the next car? Uh, yeah, I believe so, yeah. You, you made him. The Mazda RX, 87 Mazda RX-7. That was yeah. nice. But didn't hold as many tennis balls. Yeah, so you were one of the guys that Mark and I wrote an article several years ago with my dad that talked about what we thought a tennis coach was. And one of our discussions was we thought it was a guy driving around town in a RX-7 sports car with the top down loaded with cash just cruising around that's what we thought it was like country club style watch a movie and you see the pro pull up in his convertible and or whatever and that's what we thought it, it's always what we thought it was then i think slowly we realized that the car didn't really matter you were about to get out of it and spend eight hours on a tennis court in the heat and there was a little work going on but uh the tracker years eh, weren't so cool for you <laughs> So what uh, what convertible do you have now that you're a you know you're a high pollutant tennis pro at a club? I mean, what what are you still rolling up in? <laughs> huh? Well, I am at a I'm at a strange point in my career, Coach. I've lost the same job twice in the same building in the last three years, so that's pretty good. I know you got Todd Land, but the wrong button. all these years you've been rolling, you got to be rolling in a Mercedes Lexus convertible, right? I have a little. I have a Lincoln SUV that's usually full of children. My my children, not other people's children. 
That'd be weird. <laughs> um, I had an F-150 for several years, and I had to um, change my lifestyle a bit. So um, now it's pretty pretty low-key, but I'm, you know, tennis is work, man. The, I work now at the WAC, and I, I'm the guys out there and girls I work with, man, I, they're all grinders. Every one of them. It's just hour after hour and stealing every court you can get. I, I have a lot of respect for that crew I'm with because – I'm, I used to be that. They're going, there's guys and girls there that'll go six, seven, eight hours in a row straight, no break. And I, I'll talk to them like, I, I can't do it anymore. I used to be you. And I, I don't do more than three now. It hurts. I'll do three in a break. Um, but I, I know the amount of work put in. It's why I'm trying to branch out and do other things like this to sort of have a little bit of fun. Um, all right, coach. Oh, one thing I wanted to mention. We are on Skype. We've never done this. So, coach is in Florida. I'm sitting here in my son's bedroom in Wisconsin. I have no idea what this sounds like. And so, I hope it's good. But if it's a little shady, you all know my technology skill. It took us about an hour to figure out just how to get this. So, it's the best I could do. I hope it sounds good. Um, coach, you got anything else? Anything you want to talk about? Um, no, I actually wanted to get, if you guys, if you're working with the juniors, you know, the high school kids still, he's still working yeah. with the band. Um, if they're thinking about playing college tennis, yeah, they, they, it's, it's nice to decide maybe by sophomore, junior years, but you may be thinking about it so you can actually train and work towards that as, as maybe a goal or an outcome to, uh, to get on some college teams. There are tons of college teams looking for players. You know, not everybody's going to go to, you know, Stanford, UCLA, IU, Illinois, University of Wisconsin, and play D1 tennis. But there are so many opportunities out there for kids who really want an, op- an op- or a chance to play college tennis. But you might do a little research. And there's nothing against calling a coach, send a text message, you get a phone number, a text message, an email, something to get the coach's attention that, hey, that I'm interested in playing. And then let the coach decide if your level can, can match what they're looking for at their, at their particular school. And you got to be realistic with your level, and kids listen to you, and and you know you're a wealth experience with with playing college tennis, coaching, being at a club, and knowing the levels of, of the different uh, Division One, Two, Three, JUCO type programs. That there's a spot if kids are really interested in playing college tennis. Absolutely, I, I've had so many kids that just think they can't, and they just don't know how many opportunities are out there, and some of that's on them to be a little more vocal, do the research, and some of it's on the coaches. Get your marketing better. They should know if you're coaching college, they should know you're out there, but it's got to be better. I know there's some people around here who are really trying um, to push kids towards college tennis and doing some good things, but there are opportunities everywhere, um, and I'm, I'm with you on that. I've had players with me that they got two years, most of them paid for, and just because – they reached out or I reached out and it's a great way to do it. There's some super programs. Every, you know, most everybody is familiar with division one. That's the ones that are on TV with football, basketball, everything else. That's great. But those coaches are looking for the elite athlete, but division two, II, division three, NAIA junior college. There are tons of great programs, good schools academically to uh, continue that tennis career and, and it's a, it's, a, it's a great thing to have on the resume once you go in and look for a job at the end of the, uh, uh, the four years. For sure. All right, everybody. You've heard from uh, the famer, 
I'm not going to say it. Um, so hope you, uh, hope you enjoyed it. Hope you can hear it. And um, I think we're good. So we have a little contest going. My dad's podcast I mentioned got a whole lot of listens. And if Famer can get more listens for his, I owe him something from the Cincinnati Bengals Pro Shop. Um, but if the Bengals lose, I'm getting you a Rams shirt. You have to wear that. If the Bengals lose, I'll consider your conversation about Michael and LeBron. <laughs> right now, it's not even close. <laughs> I got it. So, go yeah. Bengals. Coach, thanks for being on. So, here's what's going to happen, Coach. I'm going to hit this right. button. Oh, that button? This button's going to it's going to play a little music, but it's still going to hey, be dude. recording. Uh, so, Dude, my, my passion bucket is totally full, so I'm, I'm, I'm good. <laughs> so, I'm going to hit it. The music's going to play, and then I'm going to end it. So if you talk during the music, that's fine, but it will still be recording. Are you ready? Please. All right. Ready. Thank, thanks, everybody. I'm going to hit the music <laughs> thanks, now. Guys. All right. <laughs>